When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Good morning. It's Monday, 24th of July with Alan Cantwell on The Michael Reed Show. On the show this morning, the fallout continues following the manner in which Ukrainian refugees were treated at accommodation on the North Road. Barbaric, disgraceful, disgusting. Just some of the terms used to describe their treatment. Threshold, the housing charity calls on the government to introduce a government rental deposit protection scheme after figures revealed that more than 200 tenants sought help to get their deposits returned. Retained firefighters are set to take strike action this week after members voted down a possible resolution from the WRC over paying conditions. The cost of travelling to work by car could become more expensive and credit unions look set to take the plunge into the mortgage market. But what will it mean for those looking for a mortgage? There will be no talk about the All-Ireland final yesterday. I came out on the wrong side of it. Very disappointing day. But can I say this? Kilkenny took the first half. Limerick annihilated the second half. Well done to them. Four in a row. You're hitting the mark with us in Kilkenny. You're also hitting the mark with the lads in Cork. They did four. And the way things are going, I can't see Limerick not making five, possibly six in a row. But well done. We'll leave it at that. No more. You want to text us? Well, you can text or WhatsApp 86 658 or LMFM telephone us on 51982200. of pensioners say the state pension is not enough to allow them to participate in life as much as they'd like to. Active Retirement Ireland has published the findings of its consultation of its members, which finds 55% of pensioners say they're worried about their finances. Almost a third say they can't afford a basic standard of living. CEO of Active Retirement Ireland, Maureen Kavanagh, says many pensioners feel insecure about their income for the years ahead. And Maureen Kavanagh joins us this morning. Morning, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. First of all, tell me what you are looking for specifically in monetary terms per month in terms of an increase and what it's going to cost the Exchequer. What we're looking for is the government to put in place its promise, which was first proposed in 1998, in the roadmap for pension reform and in the roadmap for social inclusion is that the state pension be set at 34% of the average wage. That would mean that the current state pension of €265.30 would need to go up by €53 a week to bring it to €318 per week. And that is benchmarking the pension 
and setting it at a mark of which older people will be able to know that this is going to be their pension, this is going to be their income year in, year out. And would track inflation and track um, wage increases if it's offset at that 34% of the of the average minimum uh, wage, is that correct? Yes, I mean, look, at, um, it, if it was benchmarked against the average industrial wage, well then it would obviously increase as the average industrial wage increases, but it would be 34%. So that, we know, would give older people a livable income. Is it affordable? By raising it at €53 a week would cost approximately £1.7 a year at a time when tax and PSI returns are at £34.4 higher in 2023 than, say, back in 2020. So we know that revenue linked to multinational corporations is sustainable, but the state has very strong public finances outside of those to be able to afford this. Plus, this 34% is what the Pension Commission set out and is what the government set out as to what it can do to ensure that older people have a livable income. Okay, Maureen, let me put you to you the counterpoint then that there has to be a degree of fiscal prudence adopted by government, regardless of what they have in their coffers. And it is significant. We know that. But we have to think of a rainy day fund. We have to think of the future. Future shocks, not just in this country, but internationally, which will have an impact on the country. We have your organisations and many other organisations going to the Department of Finance in your pre-budget submissions looking for extra funding. It's just not credible or conceivable that you will get what you want, that everyone will get what they want. Do you recognise that and understand you're not going to get it? Oh, absolutely, Alan. I mean, uh, you know, our pre-budget submission, which we submitted both to the Department of Health and to the um, Department of Social Protection, is the response of a survey that we conducted with our members, and we have 20,000 members, 85% and more, live on the state pension. We understand this, but all we are saying is that there is a pension promise. First proposed in 1998, it is is written into the roadmap for pension reform. It's also in the roadmap for social inclusion of the government. And a technical analysis of the benchmark was conducted as part of the report of the Commission on Pensions. So this is already in place. This has been looked at and this has been promised. And that is what we're asking for. It is not too much to expect older people to have a livable income. In a a country that we say we must treat our older people well, we cannot have a country where we have older people struggling, having worked all their lives or, or contributed to the economy yeah. and contributed to their home all their lives. And this being the only income that they have. But you accept. Way of making income. Yeah, Maureen, you accept that promises are made politically and promises are broken uh, when it suits well, politicians I to do that. Now they have, you, but, but they have, the government let it be said. And I think you refer to it as tinkering around the edges, giving little, you know, increases here, there during budgets or during difficult times. But that, that's not the resolution as far as you're concerned. Absolutely not. Look at um, our respondents in our survey felt that the €12 euro increase that was put on during budget 2023, it just wasn't enough. Now, they understand how difficult things have been since COVID. They understand the war in Ukraine has had a major impact on inflation and also on uh, energy costs. 
what they are looking for is that to stop this political football of 10 euros on the pension, 12 euros on the pension, what will it be next year? What will it be the year after? Benchmark the pension as promised at 34% of the average wage. Then people will know what they are getting. They can plan. They can do things. They can decide mm. that maybe they'll be able to afford... But, but you, you, nonetheless, you nonetheless welcome the move on the Department of Finance last year. Well, the government last year to introduce three interventions, financial interventions around the cost of uh, electricity and power and heating. That was welcome. Now, whilst they haven't come out and said they were going to do something at this budget, I listened to, as you probably did, the Minister for Finance, he signalled his intent that something had come down the track. That has to be welcome, does it not? Oh, without a shred of a doubt, and please don't misunderstand in our call for this 34% uh, you know, increase, what we are looking for is um, we're very grateful for those. Our members are very grateful, but those payments were made to everybody regardless mm. of your income. And pensioners are sitting on having 265 euros 30 a week of maximum contributory pension. That's what they have to live on. And that is what they are struggling to live on. But it is not, um, you know, it is not at the 34%, which where it should be. Okay, Maureen, well, can... We don't have the highest pension uh, rate in Europe. Can you give me an idea, percentage-wise, of how many pensioners are close to living in what's conceived to be poverty in this country as a result of not being able to survive solely on their pension? Is there any figures yeah, around well, that? There is. Like the survey on income and living conditions of 2022 showed that one in five people aged over 65 and older are at risk of poverty, with one in 10 um, at risk in poverty in 2020. And Maureen, sorry for cutting across yeah. it, but can I ask you, what is that definition of poverty as it pertains to pensioners? It is about what you can afford to eat. Can you afford to purchase a winter coat? Like, what is your purchasing power? of your income and that is where that's what is measured it's it's not exactly um you know it's there's no level of poverty is acceptable yeah. to be honest with you and especially for older people and that's really what we're trying to say and particularly for older people on the pension who've no capacity to earn more money than what they they're actually getting on their weekly pension is it your view that the government are seeking absolution around this by virtue of the fact we've organisations such as Vincent of Vincent de Paul who will intervene in situations like that and therefore the government will say, ah, well, you know, nothing to see here because we've other organisations who will deal with those particular problems, the crisis situations, as I call them? Absolutely. Look at and these organisations do wonderful work for people that are in crisis. Older people don't see themselves in that they see themselves as having contributed all their lives, uh, paid their taxes, paid whatever they needed to pay, their social um, contributions. They see this as their income now and they feel very let down by the government and they're proud and they don't see themselves as going to um, the uh, social protection for additional funding or see themselves going to the Vincent Paul. They see that for other people who they feel are probably worse off than themselves. But we have a lot of older people making, making crucial decisions every week about what they can spend their 265 euros on.
On the basis of your interactions, and I presume you've had them with um, government officials or civil servants or whomever um, when you were putting in your pre-budget submission, presumably they will tell you face to face, yeah, well, we think this is great. We want to do this. We will endeavour to do our best. But, you know, if they're hollow words, I mean, is there any indication you got from anybody to suggest that they would follow through on this, what seems to have now been a broken promise? Unfortunately, no. The Department of Social Protection had its pre-budget forum with NGOs last week and uh, we weren't picking that up versus like last year, for example. The department made a very clear message that they were going to increase the thresholds for the household benefits package, which is what, again, our members had said would be a good way of you know, of of protecting older people, particularly the most vulnerable. But no, we were picking up nothing. There was very much the rhetoric of we will be looking at additional payments for everybody due to energy costs. That is fine. And everybody, you know, people needed that. We're talking about pensioners who need to know what their income, Hmm. their income is going to be. So if you consider then the money pot that's available to the government and some would say we've never had it so good in terms of the way the finances are and you're not getting what you require on the basis of this broken promise, surely to God then looking forward as the years go on, the reality of getting to a point where you want for what you believe pensioners should be given is not going to happen. We will keep fighting it. We're involved in an alliance with SIP2 Age Action, the National Women's Council, their senior citizens parliament and ourselves called the Pension Promise and we will we will ensure that the older people have their voice around this, if not in this budget then coming up in the next couple of years towards the elections. We have to. This is not just for older people today. This is for everybody, anybody who's going to be in receipt of the state pension in the future. It needs to be benchmark and set within the legal status. And you accept probably that you're somewhat lost in the clamour that's around housing, social housing, the problem of homelessness, cost of living crisis, all that sort of thing, that you're probably a little bit down the pecking order. Which is, which Alan shouldn't be, Hmm. because what we're talking here about is the income of older people. And you know, funniest thing about it, that we know from our members alone, it actually makes economic sense to provide a decent pension to older people, because they will, in return, return that money to the exchequer through their spending power locally. Just before I let you go, Maureen, can I ask you, how are we performing when it comes to looking after the elderly in society when we benchmark it against other European countries? Are we better, worse? Where do, where do we sit at that table? It's very mixed. I mean, um, look, we've a lot of really good infrastructure. We've age-friendly pro- cities and programs. We have, um, you know, uh, access to medical cards. We've we have some very very good services. But I think around our pension, we are not great at all because Ireland is the is there's <laughs> only a one-tier state pension providing a basic rate for all. Uh, you know, and, and not everybody's even getting that full rate. In other European countries, there is the second tier. It's called a top-up state pension based on previous earnings and contributions in addition to the basic rate. So we're, we're, not, not very, we're really not that very, very good at ensuring that older people 
having contributed all their lives, reached the stage of their lives where now they need to draw back on their on their pension, um, and that we're saying that this is all you're getting to live on. Okay, we leave it there. Maureen Cavanagh, CEO of Active Retirement Ireland, joining us on the phone. Let's take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. That's the number 0861800658 if you want to contact us this morning with your comments or to let us know what is on your mind. 8,600 households receive support from the housing charity threshold on tenancy issues between April and June of this year. The charity says it helped 900 households from entering homelessness. Threshold is calling on the government to establish a deposit protection scheme as nearly 200 renters looked for help to get their deposits back. CEO John Mark McCafferty joined us uh, this morning for more on this. Um, John Mark, thank you for joining us. Uh, I want to talk to you about that deposit protection scheme first off. Surely that's the role of the RTB. You shouldn't be sticking your nose in there. Well, it it should be the the role of the RTB to run it. Um, I guess it's our experience um, for many, many years where uh, the, the unlawful or the unfair retention of a deposit uh, by a landlord. This isn't, these are in circumstances where tenants have fulfilled all the obligations of their, their lease agreement and still don't get their tenancy back, uh, their, 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 uh, their deposit back. Um, that can have huge implications for a tenant um, trying to move to another tenancy where they may not have any um, mm. savings and the only savings they have de facto are, are the, 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 or the deposit. deposit. But, but again, back to my point, the RTB has a role in relation to these matters which arise from time to time with tenants and landlords. So why are we doubling up with something else or where is the fair hearing going to yeah. be under this particular scheme that you're proposing? Yeah, well, the RTB do um, hear of um, cases but the issue here is that there is no third party who are holding the deposits um, objectively and then releasing them on the basis of um, an adjudication process okay. if those if those deposits are are retained. And our, our colleagues, um, you know, in Northern Ireland and in Scotland and, and many other jurisdictions, they have some kind of deposit protection scheme because they understand that the, the, the unfair or unlawful retention of deposits is a huge issue for a lot of tenants. Um, now, we, we also have legislation uh, from 2015 uh, for a deposit protection scheme. It just hasn't been enacted. So in, 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 at one level, government is saying, yes, we need this, so therefore we've legislated for it. But at the same time, um, there's been no action in terms of making this a reality. Just to be clear, John Mark, you're looking for it to be taken away from the landlord, to be put in, for want of a better expression, like an escrow, until the end of the tenancy. And then, considering everything is all right between the tenant and the landlord, the tenant gets the deposit back, or if there's some sort of adjudication process to be undertaken, then that happens in this particular body, correct? Absolutely, you know, and, and if um, a tenant has not fulfilled their their their, um, their tenancy duties, and, and if, for example, there was substantial damage, and, and, and that was proven in the adjudication process, the landlord will uh, retain that deposit, uh, as is uh, rightly the case. He, he will be he or she will be given that deposit at the end of the process by this um, by this deposit protection scheme. It's just that um, we've seen for 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 decades now. Um, where a, a, te- a deposit is retained by a landlord and then at the end of a tenancy is simply not returned. Um, and it's purely because the, you know, the landlord has the power. Yes, it can be contested at the RTB, but um, you know, our experience is that 
often uh, people don't go through that uh, the, the hassle and the kind of the uh, the, the, the challenging time of that and, and kind of they need to get that deposit back um, as quickly as possible in order to move on in order to secure another tenancy oh. with with a deposit. But again, we we face the same problems, whether it be with the RTB or this particular organisation that we want to set up that will retain the, the the deposits. It always is an onerous prospect to go through it on the part of the landlord, on the part of the tenant. So how do you fast track it? Is it possible to fast track? Because there has to be due process here that more often than not, the burden of proof has to be on the part of the landlord when it comes to these disputes. Well, the beauty of a deposit protection scheme means that, you know, you'll have either the RTB or another organisation who will focus on adjudication process. And and what's what's key here um, is that the process is quick, is timely for both the tenant and the landlord. Um, What we've got just now is it's one of many issues that that are kind of dealt with between kind of tenant and landlord in the RTB. Um, and a, a key aspect of this is the fact that this is held by a third party and, and that third party to focus, whether yeah. it's the RTB or another um, player, um, to focus on a timely and expeditious um, treatment and, and decision on, on that decision, on, on that area of deposit retention. Um, so it, it's also um, a, a big issue for, for many tenants because, as, as I mentioned, um, many tenants are on low or, or uh, middle incomes, and they have very little in the way of, of savings. And that's that's been uh, that that situation has deteriorated in, in recent years because of the the level of rents. There about people's ability to 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 save has been very very much compromised. So that um, deposit means so much in terms of trying to secure that. Uh, the, the ever climbing number of alternatives and um, uh, rented um, houses and apartments out there in the market. And that's why the deposit protection um, and, a, and a deposit protection scheme okay. is so important and it's so needed now. Right, we're, we're obviously talking about the tenants here because that that is the, the business that you operate in is the protection of individuals who you know who may become homeless and we will need to do everything to protect them. But what about the landlord in this? Are they going to get a fair crack at this? Should a situation arise where there, does, where there is a dispute or would it always come down on the side of the, the tenant? There has to be an even balance and um, we also need landlords in this private rented market um, to provide um, the housing. Um, so it's so important that any kind of treatment of an, an, an adjudication process has that even balance and is able to weigh up um, the, two, the two arguments. Um, and, and that's the same across the Residential Tenancies Acts and, and, and the work of the Residential Tenancies Boards. So the whole idea of the Deposit Protection Scheme, it goes to a third party. It's, it's not that you know that either the tenant or the landlord kind of hold this deposit. It, is, it does go to a third party. That, that deposit is either released or it's withheld depending on, that, on, on those decisions and, and it should be done expeditiously. So um, it really is important for both tenant and landlord. And also, I mean, the vast majority of landlords are small landlords. Mm. Often what, what happens is they, they take the, the, um, the deposit, they, they, usually, they, they might use that deposit, spend it on, on, on certain things, you know, spend it on um, maybe repairs on the, on the house or whatever. And then when the, the tenant comes to leave, um, the landlord's got to stump up um, a tenancy deposit, which, which may have been spent a, a long time ago. So it's actually better for all parties that this money is just held 
um, in escrow, as you say, and then can be either released or, you know, either released to the, the, the tenant or returns, indeed, to the landlord um, if there are sufficient grounds uh, that the landlord retain that, retain that deposit. Uh, John Mark, I just want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the res- support that you provided for 8,600 households. That's that's significant. It's more than significant. It's staggering. When you say support, what levels of support? What does it cover? Yeah. Well, we, Sorry, this we is between tried. April and April and June of this year. This is yeah, not over a period indeed. of twelve months. Yeah, indeed. No, we we have a lot of contact with a lot of tenants across across Ireland. Um, and we are the specialised private rented uh, tenancy service um, for people and families. Um, and what we do is we provide very tailored advice. Um, you know, obviously the RCB is a player in terms of providing information, but we're providing very tailored advice to the specific circumstances of of tenants and their families. Um, and we, we often represent them at the RCB where there are... Um, a, where there's some kind of um, dispute, um, and we're also tasked to pre- uh, to prevent homelessness through our tenancy protection service. Mm-hmm. So, if you like, there's a three pronged approach. There's 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 advice, and that can be something fairly uh, basic, or it can be very complex and have a, a number of issues attached to it. Um, there's also representation where that's required because. Um, Often, you know, tenants won't know the rights, and the Residential Tenancies Act um, are very complex and very lengthy, um, and many people maybe are, are are not so familiar with the systems that, that apply in Ireland and and require that additional support that we can provide and additional representation that we can provide, and then we're, we're stopping people from entering homelessness from the private rented sector. And I think it's really important to say that at least half of all. Um, uh, homeless uh, people who become homeless, those cases um, come from, those people, those families come from the private rented sector. They lose their tenancy. For Which quite legitimately they lose their tenancy because the landlord may decide to sell, he may decide that he needs it himself or herself or to put one of their own siblings into it for whatever reason. So it's important to say that these people just aren't wholesale evicted from, from properties. There's potentially legitimate reasons why they have to leave the, the private rental sector. Absolutely, and and where there are legitimate reasons, um, we can't um, prevent that tenancy from ending. We can't uh, prevent that lease from from coming to an end where um, it's legal and legitimate. Um, But perhaps we can um, ensure that the tenant has enough uh, notice periods. So sometimes, you know, uh, the landlord might be selling but might not give uh, the sufficient level of notice periods. And a, a tenant can come to us and we can say, okay, look, Looks like the, the, the landlords, you know, you know, are in the right to sell here. You know, we, we can't halt that. However, um, it looks like you've just been given, I don't know, one month's notice, but actually your your, your notice period is, is in fact closer to four or six months or whatever. And of course, and that now, depends on the length of the tenancy agreement and absolutely. how long they've actually been in situ in the property. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, and those um, those details. That's where our advisors come in because they are they're trained in the Residential Tenancies Act and the details of those acts. So they're able to advise tenants on exactly those kind of issues, how long, you know, on the basis of how long we've been in their tenancy, what kind of level of notice period they are they're eligible for, what they can expect in terms of standards and repairs. Um, you know, whether it's lawful that the landlord has increased um, the rent, you know, it, it yeah. may indeed be lawful at the point or it may not be. Let, let me so just, all of these issues. Let me just ask you finally and briefly, John Mark, um, 
What in general is the relationship between landlords and tenants like in this country? Is it healthy? I mean, there will always be those cases that uh, come to public attention, which are a disgrace and part of both parties. But in, in the main, what's the relationship like from your experience? The relationship is generally good uh, and generally positive. Um, you know, it's really important that we have landlords of, of varying you know, sizes. Uh, you know, the landlord with the one unit, the two units or the, or the larger landlords, you know, providing housing. But the biggest challenge right now is the, the lack of availability of private rented housing and, and um, landlords leaving the market. So it's really important that the, that positive relationship between tenants and landlords is maintained. However, I guess we come in and also the residential tenancies board in their own way come in when that relationship either breaks down or indeed a tenant may just have a query mm. uh, but they may feel there's more to their, their situation than meets the eye and they need to check that with us. That's where we come in. Okay. And if there is a dispute, unfortunately there are disputes and, and we can assist and help in that regard. Very good. We must leave it there. CEO of Threshold, John Mark McCafferty, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. 086 658 if you want to WhatsApp or text us this morning, or if you want to call us, 0419832000. Copy your comments in relation to pensions. Sarah says that on the whole, she thinks OAPs in this country are fairly well looked after with free medical cards, free travel, etc. The problem lies in the continually rising cost of living. Cost of energy, food, fuel and medical expenses are going through the roof and it's making it more and more difficult for pensioners to make ends meet. Tommy says the only way to survive in your old age in this country is to have a private pension on top of the state pension. And even then, it's tough because it's going to be taxed to the hilt on it. Just some of your uh, comments. We'll get through others uh, a little bit later on in the programme. Now, if you picked up any newspaper this morning, particularly the Daily Mail, uh, you will have seen the... um, the story, punitive, outrageous, cost of travelling in your car is going to get more and more expensive. And the headline reads, punitive road pricing scheme aimed at forcing people out of their cars could see commuters paying €38 Euro just to drive to work. Okay, That's just one of the statistics. There's many others as well that we're going to have a look at. And we're going to talk about that um, with... A person in the know, but not only about that, we're also going to talk about the f- cost of fuel around the place. We're joined by the uh, AA's Blake Boland, who's communications officer at the organisation. For more on it, Blake, good morning to you. Good morning, Alan. Um, outrage and indignation, but you know as well as I know that this is only a kite-flying exercise on the part of the government to see what sort of reaction that you will get to it. The likelihood of it being introduced is probably zip. That's fair to say, isn't it? That's right, and you took the words right out of my mouth there, mouth there uh, kite-flying exercise. And a little bit of context is very important yeah. for people here. So this goes back to a report that we all woke up to on Tuesday morning last week, the Tax Strategy Group, uh, part of the, the government. And they're notorious for doing this sort of stuff every year. Uh, that's right. We, we see it constantly. And we're, we're hearing whispers about, you know, back-channel chat at the moment about what that would mean if people tried to drill down into the details. So we're, we're very much um, in the dark at this stage. It's a quite fine exercise. But there's, there's some facts there. We, we do know for sure that with the government's ambitious targets, as we head towards 2030, we need to lower admission, emissions. And there's increasing amount of EVs on the road. And that is the flip side of, of the positivity there, as we do reduce emissions, is that the tax fall, the tax take, 
think is, is falling massively. We're looking at a 1.5 billion euro short. So that, that has to be recouped in some shape or form. They're talking about then taxing yeah. on the basis of weight of a vehicle, which then automatically brings the EVs and the electric vehicles into another band of tax by virtue of their size and weight. That's right. Yeah. So at the moment, like we, we've seen the positives. So over the last three years, we've seen the, the grams per kilometre in terms of emissions dropping from kind of mid 130s down to about 110 at the moment. And at the moment, you know, if you've got a heavier, a bigger car, it releases more emissions and you get taxed more in general at the moment. Mm. But we're really seeing that changing now as we put plugs onto cars. So full EVs, but also plug in hybrids. There's been generous subsidies there. But you pay 100 euros, 120 euros tax per year, and that's the same for the very, very small Volkswagen E-Up or even a two and a half to three ton SUV. And even though it is all electric, you're still paying that small amount. So we're going to see some changes at some stage. And you know, part of our call is that the government makes these changes in, in a way that's fair to people. And we don't want to see a situation where somebody who can, you know, just afford a, a very, very small EV pays the same amount of road yeah. tax as someone buying a hundred thousand euro three ton SUV just because it has a plug on it. Now, let's talk a little bit about congestion charges because this is something that's been mooted for a number of years now, but nobody has taken the plunge on it. It is a is it a realistic prospect when you look at the likes of Cork, Limerick, and Dublin particularly? Will it happen? It's definitely a prospect. I mean, we are seeing it in in other places um, around the world. You know, London is probably the one that we'd all be more familiar with, and we're seeing then exemptions for EVs on that as well. So it's definitely a prospect. But once again, a little bit of context. So this is all part of uh, Project Bruce that the government are calling it. So the better road usage charging evaluation. And one of those is congestion charges. And we don't know how that will pan out. Will it simply be driving your vehicle in? Will it be that you're not allowed to drive your vehicle in if it has a certain amount of emissions? Or it might be on certain times, so you'll have to pay more between, for example, 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. So we don't yet know where that's going to go. But it's definitely a prospect. And it's uh, it's something that the government will be looking at for sure. The government may be looking at it, but as we... Are we, as a nation of motorists, and we do love our car in this country, are we ready to to swallow that bitter pill when it comes to paying more to use our cars to go into cities or pay even, even more on tolls to meet those targets which we have to under law when it comes to our carbon emissions? Yeah, well, I, I've heard somebody describe it as, as death by a thousand cuts. You know, and recently we saw increases in, in the road tolls and um, fuel prices have in general, although they've stabilised recently. We might talk about that later on. Yeah, yeah, I, I have that. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment, yeah. Yeah, there's constant increases, um, you know, parking charges. So it's, there's only so much that, that people can take or are willing to take. And, and as we mentioned already, it, it needs to be fair as well. OK, let's go to um, the cost of fuel. I remember filling my car at one point during the crisis, it must be about a year ago, and it got to €130 worth of diesel. Thankfully, that has now changed because I think I was paying about €229, a litre of diesel. What's the price now, roughly, when we look at petrol and diesel? Yeah, you're, you're right there. It was around this time last year that we saw those prices. Um, so at the moment, uh, our survey that we put out last week there, the AA fuel price survey, so petrol is, is sitting at about 165 which was the exact same as it was the previous month. And the pet price for diesel did increase slightly by two cents up to 155 And that's not to, to forget also that we're, we're in the middle of some, not price increases, but the restoration of the fuel excise duty. So we've had one 
stage or one tranche of that and we've got two more. Yeah, and that's been creeping up and I think it's October when we'll see the point where it's fully back to where it it should be. So what way will that reflect in terms of prices? That's right. So on September the 1st, the rates will will increase or be restored. Um, Let's get the the lingo right there. So about 7 cents for petrol and 5 cents for diesel. And then on October 31st, we're going to see that final tranche. So that's going to be 8 cents on for petrol and another 6 cents on for diesel. And this is if all else stays equal, if the market stays, stays the same. And what are the indications in relation to market movement on this? Presumably, we're not going to back to the bad old days of 12, 18 months ago, but there's, there's usually some sort of fluctuation, but very little in the market, in a stable market, that is. That's right, yeah. I mean, if we go back 12 months ago, it, that was a lot closer to the, the start of the invasion of Ukraine. So the market is definitely more stable at the moment. Uh, it would be fantastic to have a crystal ball out, you know, and both know. of us wouldn't be sitting here right now because <laughs> it's the future. But things do look uh, a lot more stable. So we are facing some, some increases, obviously, with these restoration of duties. But with a bit of luck, the market is, is will remain stable and, and we won't see anything close to what we have seen before. Very good. Blake Boland, Communications Officer with AA Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. If you want to contact us, 0861800658 or 0419832000. If you're reading the papers this morning, you'll probably hear, and for that matter, you'll hear it on the news as well, that the credit unions are planning to capture a huge swathe of mortgages with a low-cost, no-gimmicks national mortgage brand. The member-owned lender is looking at setting up a centralised mortgage company with the aim of getting to a point of issuing one in ten of all mortgages. Well, joining us for more on this is Charlie Weston, personal finance editor with the Irish Independent. Charlie, thanks for joining us. It had been an aspiration, I suppose, on the part of the credit unions for some time, but is it now going to become a reality? Is this happening? Yeah, Alan, this is an attempt to kind of do it in a centralised way. You have 200 credit unions out there. Some of them offer mortgages, particularly the bigger ones. Some of them don't. Yeah. Uh, the ones that do would all have different interest rates. Some of them have variable rates only. Some of them have fixed rates and variable rates. Some of them have rates as low as 2.95%. Others have higher rates. You know, uh, so there's a whole different kind of rules. You might go into your credit union and be disappointed that they don't offer a mortgage. So the idea here is that the credit unions all get together. And we're talking about both representative bodies here, the League of Credit Unions and the Credit Union Development Association. They've come together and said, look, here's how we could offer a national uh, low gimmick, no gimmicks, low, low, low interest rate um, mortgage that'd be branded nationally. Would be uh, there'd be a centralised kind of office behind it, uh, promoting it, and uh, you know doing the back office work, and would have one interest rate. You'd have various you know um, different options. You'd have fixed rates. You'd have um, uh, variable rates, and you'd have green mortgages. That kind of thing. So it take the confusion out of it to do it on a proper kind of professional way, and that would be useful in convincing the central bank to allow them to do more mortgage mm-hmm. lending because they're very restricted in what they can lend at yeah. the moment, those that do do it. You and many others have been talking about a shake-up in the market in this country, that there seems to be very little competition out there. Is this, is, is this one of the elements that we need in order to bring that shake-up into the market? Yeah, we desperately need, need, need more, more competition in the, generally in the banking market, but particularly in the mortgage market. Very much at the moment you have Bank of Ireland and AFB with permanent TSB there as well, but those, those three essentially have it to themselves, and the big two are totally dominant. You know, you have AIB with its three brands, AIB, EBS, and Haven, you know, and and, 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 and Bank of Ireland. And those two are cleaning up 
you know, we had a couple of non-bank lenders who were active there for a while when interest rates were low. Yeah. Uh, you had ICS and Finance Ireland. But, you know, as soon as market interest rates started rising, they, they couldn't finance uh, their lending. So they kind of pulled back their reins. You have out-of-bound money, which is doing about a billion euros in, in lending. But there isn't enough competition. So the hope here, Alan, is that credit unions could get really serious and do this in a national way and, 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 and eat into that dominance of, of the banks and, 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 and open it up and, and provide better competition because they could offer really low rates. Any credit union that does offer a mortgage at the moment, their rates are knocking the socks off what's on offer from the banks. You know, you can get, as I say, you can get rates as low as 2.95%. Uh, so that, you know that, that they really, really could be could be a, a viable, good alternative for people. And when do you anticipate they'll push the button on this? When can we go into our credit union to look for one of these mortgages? Well, your credit union might offer a mortgage already. You know, various of but them. But centralised one, the one that's the, the centralised one yeah. could be. Yeah, yeah. They need to first get agreement, by, by, and that's likely by the by the autumn to fund this new body, this new centralised system. And as it is at the moment, there's a lot of demands on, on funding from credit unions. So, you know, enough credit unions need to say, OK, we put in €50,000 or whatever it is to, to set up a, a centralised body, and then it'll be operated in phases. So, look, you could be, if all things going right, could be next year or so, where there will be a centralised, kind of standardised mortgage offering from the credit unions, which would mean that even if your credit union wasn't offering a mortgage, this will be a way for them to, to direct you to a credit union that is offering one. So it, it would open up the market for more credit union mortgage lending and it would be useful and convincing the central bank to ease back a bit on the lending restrictions on credit unions. Now, it's very much at the embryonic stage, as you said, it could take a year or more. So at what point do you think that the other lenders will react to this to make it probably a little bit more attractive to stay with them as opposed to looking across, across the road to the credit union? Because presumably uh, the, 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 the proposition that the credit unions will offer initially will have to be attractive enough to entice them away from the other lenders. They can react very quickly. Excuse me, Alan. As soon as they see a decent rate coming out from the credit union, a nationalised new credit union brand, they'll jump on and, and, and react to that to try and snuff it out. Uh, you know, they're big. They've got loads of deposits from savers. Uh, they can react. So, you know, the banks will react, but at the moment they don't have to. They don't have to do, they just do it, very much take it as they want to take it uh, and, and, and are sitting back making a fortune from the fact that um, uh, they have a lot of deposits and they're using their deposit money to fund their, uh, their their mortgages. You'll see in the next two weeks AIB and Bank of Ireland probably reporting a combined 4.3 billion euros in profits, something ridiculous like that. Uh, they're extremely profitable at the moment because interest rates have risen on the European level. So that's helping the banks here. So they, you know, they could do more. They get they, they get to be more competitive, and hopefully, a credit union mortgage will come in there and put some manners on them, as it were. Well, I suppose in the defence of the banks, they'd be saying, "Look, we had to operate off a very low base for a very long period of time, and we were just recouping the sort of profits that we should have been making back then for our shareholders." Now that interest rates have gone up. And, and they also have to be bailed out by the taxpayer. No, let's not forget that either. Nobody will excuse them for that. They're never going to be forgiven for that. <laughs> as long as those of us who live through that live. We, we, we all did. Charlie, let uh, me ask you just about, just about interest rates. Have we Are we nearing the end of the interest rates um, increase cycle, do you think, from the ECB? Good news on that, Alan. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's an interest rate coming, an interest rate rise from the European Central Bank coming on Thursday. That will be the 19th increase in in a year. This all started last July last year, 
and the expectation was that there would be another one in September. But I've been reading some um, an analysis this morning from market watchers, kind of, you know, stockbrokers, etc. And they're saying, you know, they're pointing to comments made by a Dutch central banker, uh, Klaus Knott, who tends to be very eager to increase interest rates. He's saying maybe they won't increase interest rates in September. Now, when somebody like Klaus Knott says that, that's a good sign. You know? yeah. So hopefully we might see, we'll see, and we definitely will see another interest rate rise on Thursday, but hopefully that could be the last one for a while. And we would hope, what, a quarter of 1% as opposed to half? I think the expectation is a quarter, yeah, a quarter of 1%, uh, you know, which would, would, would take the, 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 the refinance rate, the one that tracker mortgages are set off, that would take it to 4.25, it would take the deposit rate to, I think it's about 3 points. Yeah. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Seven um, five or something like that, um, but, but yeah, yeah. So, so, so you know, hopefully, then if they pause then for a while and inflation will start easing back. There are already signs, tentative signs that inflation is still rising, but not at the same rate. And just historically, Charlie, how will the ECB react when we get to a point where interest rates are at where they require them to be at, which is around the 2% mark? Will they move as quickly to drop the interest rates back? Or have we seen the days of very low interest rates over that we're going to see it hover somewhere around 3 3.5% in the future? Yeah, the days of the 0% interest rate on for the European Central Bank are over. Uh, you know, when they say they're going to pause, they'll probably stay at about, uh, you know, current rates for a while, and it could be 2025 before they start easing them back. But I think you're right. When they do ease them back, they won't go, it'll ease them back to about 3%, which would they, that's seen historically as mm. a normal interest rate. We mean, had abnormal interest rates for a very long period. Uh, so, yeah, that's probably where we're going, but it, it'll be, It'll be 2025, maybe 2024, 25 before we get back to 3%. Are we seeing the um, 
the result of the incre- increase in interest rates over the past period of time uh, biting yet, particularly on the part of those who are on tracker mortgages, because they are the ones who are going to be hit instantly. But it does take a little bit of time to feed through to the economy. Are we seeing that happening yet, Charlie? We, we, we haven't seen any great big rise in arrears overall, but I mean, we, we are there is pressure, immense pressure on anybody whose mortgage was sold to a budget fund, and some of those people did not, you know, did, didn't fall into arrears. But uh, because they, um, many of those are on variable rates, and they have been going up at a, a ridiculous rate, and they started on high rates anyway. Uh, and tracker people are under pressure. But the good thing for them is a lot of those mortgages are older mortgages. Yeah. There's a lot of the money paid down. Uh, but you know, business lending is, is is down. That's what the European Central Bank wants to see across Europe. That's down. But we. Uh, we, we we, we will start to see pressure on, particularly in on the arrears for people whose mortgages were sold to budget funds because their rates are very high already, as it is. Just before I let you go, Charlie, um, can I just ask you then, I suppose, in relation to the uh, the purchasing power of individuals with interest rates going up, are we still seeing you know, a hunger there for buying houses despite the increase in, in mortgages? There still seem to be a lucky few who can afford to buy houses, particularly the new ones, and new house prices are increasing at three and a half times the rate for uh, existing ones. Uh, you know, buyers who are lucky enough to be able to gather a deposit, particularly if their mother and father can give them money, they're able to compete all right, and they're being helped by two government schemes, the Help to Buy scheme, where you get up to €30,000 back in your tax, and the other one is the First Home scheme, where... The, the, the state the state body set up there to, to run that can take a, a, a stake in your home of up to uh, between 20 and 30 percent up to that much um, you know if you're doing the two scheme help to buy and and uh, for a first home you can they can only take 20 percent but it could be up to 30 percent if you're only doing the one scheme so th- th- those things are they're they're but they're rocket fuel under, under the market at the moment so anybody who can get a deposit together and, and can demonstrate a, a, an ability to repay can be helped with those schemes. That, you know they're they're competing hard in the market, so we're seeing we're seeing that at the moment. Alan. And finally, tracker: should I go? Should I stay? You need to take advice. Everybody's situation is different. Like, there's no one, there's no one answer fits here. I used to say you'd be you'd be crackers to give it to your trackers. I came up with that silly line that doesn't apply anymore. Okay. Your situation and my situation could be very different. You need to speak to somebody who, who, who can look at your, your your financial situation in the round and say, look, at you only have so much to pay off or you're coming in for an inheritance or whatever, uh, or, or else, you're, you know, you're on a high tracker rate. Maybe you should you know, get a fixed rate now because there's, you know, the, the, the last of the sub 4% mortgage rates are, are going to disappear soon. OK, Charlie Weston, Personal Finance Editor with the Irish Independent. Thank you for joining us. Just before we take a break, I want to get to some of your um, comments because there are quite a few to get through. Uh, dealing with the issue of fuel, the fuel companies uh, have to be forced to cut their rates by at least 7%. They are making huge profits on the back of exorbitant fuel prices at the expense of those on a fixed income. Example, OAPs, persons on disabilities who need heat all year long. Come on, energy aboard, gosh, flow gas, etc. Get your rates down now to apply from September. That's from Brendan. Hi, Alan. When do you know, or when does the mandatory pension scheme start? Do you know when it ha- is? Not too sure, but it is. It, it, it's going to happen soon. I'll try and find out an answer uh, for that for you before we leave. Uh, Alan, my husband's in a nursing home now and all I'm left with is his pension. I have a mortgage to pay when he has an appointment for the hospital. I have to pay for the wheelchair, taxi and everything else he needs. I have to get it from my pension. I can tell you I aim 
uh, I am at the limit now. And in relation to the match yesterday, I hope the fact that Limerick and Kilkenny teams avoided hotel stay and went home after the All-Irelands, as did their supporters, the cost of accommodation and hospitality is way too expensive and boycott is one way of sending a message. Just a couple of your comments, we take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Reed rolled charges the proposals there. Andy wants to know why is it always the motorist who has to take the hit when it comes to generating extra revenue? The introduction of a road usage charge would be an absolute disaster for him and could end up costing him a fortune for his daily commute, he says. He loves to be able to use public transport to get to work, but unfortunately, where he lives, the service is too sporadic to enable him to get to work on time. If this uh, charge goes ahead, it will be a huge burden on many commuters. Just in relation to the enrolment of the pension, end of the year, I've been told, is when that kicks off. Don't forget, if you want to contact us, 86 658 or you can call us 0419832000. Sinn Féin spokesperson on media, Melda Munster, has said that RTE's denial that the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission is investigating GAA Go does not bode well for their pledge to clean things up and embrace good governance. Deputy Munster raised the issue of GAA Go streaming at the Oireachtas Media Committee this month and secured confirmation from the GAA and RTE that GAA Go is operating without the required clearance from the CCPC. Deputy Imelda Munster joins us this morning. Deputy, good morning. Thank you for joining us in relation to this. If I remember correctly, this um, arose following your questioning of Declan McBennett at the committee. And if I remember correctly, he did say that the Competition Authority were aware of what was going on, so presumably that's his way of saying, well, there is an investigation, surely? Well, it's it's kind of, I had to press the question, I think, about three times to see whether the operating without clearance. He said they were currently in negotiations, and eventually when I pressed them again, were they operating without clearance? The answer I got then was yes, that they were operating. And they had uh, received clearance from the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission to stream games abroad for the Irish diaspora or for anyone who was, you know, away mm. on holidays and wanted to watch a match. Um, but they hadn't received clearance to show games in Ireland behind their paywall as they had done this year, you know. And um, if you look at the, the CCPC approval papers, uh, the GAA Go pay-per-view service was for international rights only and that was very clear not for the island of Ireland and that was stated I think five times in their approval papers so um, RTE had known that they hadn't got clearance Well equally Deputy I mean the onus, the onus also has to be on the CCPC to say guys you're operating outside the confines of what we agreed you could do therefore cease and desist Well that's exactly it too because um, I had been in touch with the CCPC to, to flag this up with them and see what was being done about it and um, they had said if it, a joint venture which was previously cleared by them expands its activities that stuff could amount to the creation of a new joint venture and require further clearance by them and that they would be they were engaging with all the parties and that they'll provide further comment at a later stage. But yes, that's that's their task is to oversee this sort of thing and to make sure that people aren't going beyond what their clearance was mm. given for. So the responsibility lies with them too.
Now, taking this in isolation, it, it is a serious matter because they are operating without the requisite licence to do so in the country. But when you take it in the round when it comes to what has been going on with RTE, you're of the view that this is further evidence of an organisation that is not prepared to engage in a responsible, open and frank manner when it comes to issues which have arisen out of the pack and out of the media committees. Is that reasonable to say? Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I mean, I... At that committee meeting that day when I was asking about clearance, in my head I was thinking, I can't believe after the couple of weeks we've had that you're actually not answering me in a very direct and open fashion. That, as I said, it was three on three attempts before I got him to admit that they were operating without clearance, given all that's gone on, you know, and it, it certainly gives you the impression that the rules don't apply to them, that there's that mentality within RTE that they can, you know, override rules that should apply apply to them. Can I ask you, you Deputy... Know, especially in an effort when we're, they're, they're pledging to clean up their act, yeah. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly bode well for them. Can I ask you, um, and you were there that day when Deputy Alan Kelly of the Labour Party... Uh, gave a list a a bigger pardon uh, gave um, a a list of um, of documents that he wanted from Orti and it was an extensive list did did you get that list did the committee get it yet as far as I know we haven't got it yet we've got some information back but not nothing um, of the scope that we had requested but we're, we're told that it, it will be forthcoming, so we'll just have to wait and see when we get all of the information back. We'll analyse all of that and take it from there. And your colleague, who's chair of the Public uh, Accounts Committee, Brian Stanley, also made a call, I think it may have been on Friday, to say that we now need to hear from Bredoki, from D Forbes, Jim Jennings, Geraldine O'Leary, can we, and it goes back to the question again, can we compel them to come before the committee to answer the questions? Because until we hear from the likes of D Forbes, an awful lot of mm. this information that we have is essentially out of context until we hear her side of the story. Well, the former Director General is key um, to all of this, to, you know, finding, getting to the truth. Um, the Public Accounts Committee had its powers expanded so that we can actually... Um, powers of compelability but again um, you know it's whether or not we have to go down that route or they'll agree to come in before us that's the you know the hundred million dollar question whether or not they will agree to come in give us what information they know um, and clear up but I suspect with the forensic accountant uh, going into RTE that we'll uncover a lot of the information that uh, wasn't just wasn't forthcoming um, from the executive board that we had in front of us. Now, there's no question... I hope that they will uncover yeah. that, yeah. There's no question what came out of those, uh, bo- both of those um, committees was just jaw-dropping uh, when we listened to some of the figures and what was going on and made for great media fodder. But where in reality is this going to end? At what point do you anticipate that we will have what's considered to be fit-for-purpose oversight to ensure it never happens again? And does it require a root and branch review of practices within the organisation and oversight in the organisation? Because it strikes me there is no oversight whatsoever. It operated akin to the Wild West. Oh, 100%. I mean, it was, it, you were sitting there in disbelief 
for most of those committee hearings. It does, that insider culture that exists in RTE has to be rooted out. But I think, again, once the forensic accountant goes in and furnishes a report, also the two, two reviews that have been carried out, um, they'll furnish us, they'll, they'll, we'll be furnished with the reports after that they're completed as to what safeguards can be put in place. But certainly there was no oversight, no corporate governance. And this was um, the public broadcaster who consistently cried poverty, looked for um, increase in funding, looked for an increase in the licence fee, all of that. Um, it has to be just cleared out completely because I don't think, in all honesty, anybody who watched those hearings could say that they had confidence or trust in RTE as it currently exists. Well, let, let us be very clear here. A lot of what RTE does is, is very good. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. The programming, the the, um, the the finance they put behind it, independent productions, etc. Superb. Yes. We must recognise as well that they need to be funded, but funded in a way that is sustainable and long term. So what should that model look like in your view? Well, the Department of Media is to examine the licence fee issue. Some changes might be required, but that work has now been suspended because of all of this. So we'll be looking forward to engaging with that working group report when it, whenever it's eventually published. Um, I think it was originally scheduled for March, but we certainly wouldn't accept increasing the cost of the licence fee at a time when workers and families are struggling. But overall, it has to be looked at the funding mechanism between the public purse funding of £190 plus any top-ups that they've got on top of that, and then the commercial aspect. They're in direct conflict to each other, as we've seen through the committee hearings. And when you look back, I mean, that public money was put through the commercial barter account to pay Mr. Tuberty's top-up payments. So all of that has to be looked at as a whole and see what way is best as regards funding our public broadcaster going into the future and to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again, that when people say they've confidence that the, the mechanisms and the safeguards are there, that people can actually begin to trust RTE again. Are we any closer? Yeah. Are we any closer to understanding the exit package of former CFO Breda O'Keefe? Was she no. made redundant? What was it? If it was a redundancy, why the hell do they have another CFO in there? Because my understanding of redundancy, the position becomes redundant, and that is it. Yeah. But we have a CFO there now. Are we, are we any closer getting, to getting to the bottom of that? Not as yet. No, as you say, the position wasn't made redundant. Um, the position is, you know, there right now but the the exit pass package when we when there were the executive board were asked at the committee about the exit package that she was given even the chief financial officer said he didn't know about it that it wasn't brought to his attention and yet the rules state that all of the executive board have to give clearance for it it was just unbelievable so who did sign off on that exit package. Why was there an exit package given when the position was still there and the position hadn't been made redundant? So we'll be seeking all that information and that's why the former Director General is crucial and um, that she comes in to answer those questions.
You listened to Kevin Backhurst and he was making all the right noises that he wanted, the change of culture, change in the manner in which business was done within the organisation. Do you have confidence in his abilities to be able to deliver on what he was talking about? Well, we give him give him a fair chance to to um, see what he comes up with, um, what procedures he's going to put in place. I mean, he sat there at the committee and he would have seen it firsthand. Um, I remember asking him about the conversation I had with the commercial director and the the chief financial officer, and I, the chief financial officer had said that he wasn't aware that what went on in the commercial um, accounts and that the commercial director wasn't obliged to tell him. And I said to him, is that not absolute nuts? And he agreed. He said, yes, it is. And so he knows the extent of what was going on. But he'd be judged on delivery. Let's put it that way. Um, He'd be judged on delivery and accountability. And those, you know, that were responsible for all of this to be held accountable and rigid procedures, I keep saying this, rigid procedures and practices put in place to make sure that this can never happen again. But there ha- needed, and that's what he has to deliver on. But there has to be a timeline on that. In your own head, yes. where should that, when should that be? Because we know there has to be a body of work to be carried out before we get to that point. But nonetheless, we have to have some sort of timelines here. Well, I spoke to the Minister um, previously about the reviews and the times, and she had said, look, I want to have it done diligently. She said, um, and forensically. So she was talking about six months. If it gets done quicker than that, well and good. But you'd be looking at six months maximum. This can't go on forever because funding, there's no question of funding even being discussed until this mess is cleared up. And you, as I understand it, are set to meet again in October, but is there an expectation that that may change depending on people perhaps putting themselves forward to meet with the either committee prior to that? Well, we have said if witnesses um, make themselves available, uh, key witnesses, that uh, we'll arrange, you know, a meeting will be set up, whether it's during recess or not, but it will be dependent on whether those witnesses make themselves available and that, that those invitations still stand. Very good. We leave it there. Deputy Imelda Munster, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. 086-1800-658. That's the number if you want to get in touch with us. Text or WhatsApp or you can call us on 0419832000. On the programme last week, we heard the story of the Ukrainian refugees who were told that they had to leave their accommodation on the North Road and Rod in what can only be described as very aggressive tones by the managers of the property, Siobhan and Declan Furlong. They had 24 hours. That's what they were given. To say the manner in which they were spoken to was shocking is probably an understatement because I had an opportunity to listen to that engagement uh, over the weekend. I was gobsmacked, bowled over, couldn't believe what I was listening to. And I tend to look at these things from, I suppose, down the middle, that listen to both sides and somewhere in the middle is the truth. I failed to get to the middle on this one, having listened to it. And I'm sure many of the the, uh, listeners who heard that exchange were probably of the same view. It was utterly horrendous to think that that sort of treatment is meted out to individuals who are fleeing persecution and war in this country by our fellow citizens 
is utterly disgusting. And that's the only way that I can describe it and say again that I can't find a middle ground in this. I, I can't see how there was any justification on the part of the said individuals to treat the Ukrainian refugees in the manner in which they did. It's truly shocking and appalling. Well, joining us this morning is uh, John Lannan of Doris. That's the organisation working to promote, promote and protect the rights of people from a migrant background in this country to discuss this. Um, John, you had an opportunity as well to listen to it. Am I being reasonable in what I'm saying in terms of my interpretation of what went on in that exchange? Good morning. Um, now, having listened to the um, the material that was played on the show at the end of last week, I'd have to agree with you that the manner in which residents were spoken to was shocking. Um, we we know from our work um, supporting um, beneficiaries of temporary protection from Ukraine living in um, accommodation around the country um, that there's huge variations in standards and attitudes. There are over 800 contracted providers at the moment, and I'd have to say there are many fantastic, conscientious um, businesses that are ensuring that the, mm. the needs of So, so just to be made. clear, John... This, don't even comply yeah, with the contract yeah, that the, they sign, and this is an example of one yeah, of them. And this is, is this not an isolated case, then, from your experience? We find that there's um, variations in the the standards. And one of the problems that we've highlighted to the department um, is that there's very little in the contracts when it comes to the manner in which people should be... Ah, but John, come on, we don't need we don't need to put that into a contract. Treating somebody no, with any form of no. humanity yeah. and respect doesn't need to be written in a contract. No, I would absolutely agree with you. And I think perhaps one of the areas that was unclear here was that for the, the only charges that um, refugees from Ukraine should incur in accommodation is for the contribution of food. Some instances are charged for personal laundry. It would appear that in this case that the provider was going way beyond that and was attempting to take money that they should not be taking from the residents because they were being paid already by the department. So I think we need to ensure that there's better oversight. As I said, we're finding a whole range of issues when it comes to accommodation coming from the um, the fact that uh, you know staff may not be guarded vetted, the qualities of food, all the way up to these terrible situations that you've highlighted on the programme at the end of last week. But nonetheless, we find ourselves in a situation, and you talk about oversight there, that this has happened so quickly that we found ourselves in a position where we had to scramble to try and find accommodation, that perhaps oversight was something that we pushed to the background for now, because the priority was finding the accommodation. So are we putting the um, protocols in place now to try and deal with oversight, or did we just leave them behind us? Well, we can't. I mean, we, we know that when it comes to direct provision, which was the form of accommodation being provided to international protection applicants since 2000, that the, the standards were being really poor and that the impact on children or vulnerable people in those accommodation centres has been quite significant. We need to ensure that with the 800 plus contracted providers we have around the country, that people from Ukraine are not experiencing the same issues, the same difficulties and the same problems when it comes to their their isolation, the lack of space for children to, to have um, to be able to play or to do their homework, um, the, the, the lack of, of um, 
adequate facilities for people who need to be able to come to and from work if they're fortunate to be able to get it and, and so on. So the department need to do more work here to ensure that there are standards in place. We have those for direct provision now, but we do need to see a better inspection process in place for, for those and to see that HICWA mandated to, mm. um, to, to, to inspect those centres will do that. Unfortunately, we still don't have any inspection process for the likes of that place that's been highlighted now where, where people were being overcharged. And so so what, what are you saying, John, that we're not measuring up in terms of our responsibilities or what we should be providing to ensure that the proper oversight, number one, and the proper accommodation and supports are in place? Have we failed, do you believe? We're not doing enough to ensure that there are proper standards, um, starting with the, um, you know, treating people with the respect and dignity that they deserve, that anybody deserves, and then all the way up to ensuring that people's dietary needs are met, that they've got adequate recreational space and so on. There's quite a lot there that needs to be done to ensure that um, you know that 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 it's a safe environment for for people to live in. That any place that that people are um, are, are living is is safe. We don't have standards, and, and we don't have an inspection process in place to ensure that the um, the well being and the welfare okay. of people is is safe at the moment. And 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 we we see the consequences of that. Now we would have to say that it's. It's positive that the department moved quickly to discontinue the contract for for this provider. The unfortunate consequence then for people who were living there they've is nowhere they to have go to move, and so, that it would be really it, it would be really good if they could find a place to continue their lives close to where they've already set up. Their okay, John, let me just l- let me just ask you on the basis of what your experience has been with dealing with Ukrainian refugees. What is their view in terms of the manner in which they have been treated in Ireland? How do they view that? Not just in terms of, you know, the supports and the housing, but in terms of their interaction with Irish people. Has it been a positive experience in the main? It has been positive in general, yes. And I think in the main, um, people who have come from Ukraine have, first of all, been um, grateful and appreciative of the huge effort that the um, the Irish people and and that in many respects the state has also made to to ensure that they they are provided with protection and, and sanctuary here. They've come from really difficult precarious situations. Most of them don't know if or when they'll be able to return home. They understand that um, the um, the protection that they were given was temporary. In fact, they came under what's called the Temporary Protection Directive, which is a European mechanism, which means now, of course, that the people who have been here for over a year, a year and a half in many cases, are still unsure about the future. So they do need to get more certainty around the pathways towards residency here in Ireland. In the meantime, we also need to ensure that, first of all, the temporary short-term accommodation that we're providing meets basic standards and that it okay, addresses the needs of people. We also need to ensure that we've got proper 
planning around ensuring that we've got long-term accommodation for people who have arrived here and need to stay in Ireland. Okay, John, we leave it there. That's John Lannan of Doris joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. And you welcome back to the programme. The Simon Communities of Ireland's quarterly locked out of the market report from June 23 found 50 properties available within HAP rates across the 16 areas if local authorities give the maximum level of support. The report found 934 properties were available to rent at any price within the 16 areas over the three dates surveyed in June. It represents a 39% increase from the 672 properties that were available in March 2023's Locked Out report. Wayne Stanley is the Executive Director at the Simon Communities of Ireland and joins us for more on this. Wayne Stanley, thank you for joining us this morning. Let's just be very clear on this and look at the figures in isolation. What we are saying about the 50 properties across the number of properties that are available to rent is that these are available two tenants under the HAP scheme without having them to put their hand in their pocket to make up the difference between HAP and what the rental cost is. Is that correct? That's correct. So, so all the, all the, obviously, every property that's on the market, somebody can, you know, could go after. So we're looking at properties that are available within a HAP rate. Uh, just to say anyone who's on a housing assistance payment will make a contribution towards the rent. So that's the total amount of rent that's paid. So they, they will be paying uh, a percentage of their income uh, under the HAP scheme. They pay it actually to the local authority. Um, so that's, so it, yeah. And, and then, the, so we're looking within that rate about what's sustainable. Obviously, people do uh, what we call topping up, yeah. which is where they take the rates and then pay more than that. I suppose that's the major concern for us because what we find is, particularly at the at the level of the rents that we're seeing now, um, is that it becomes unsustainable when you add in, particularly when you get into winter and you see increased fuel costs, increased cost of living costs, um, and people's essentially get to quickly get to a place where their outgoings exceed their incoming. So, uh, so if we look then, puts them under pressure. If we look at HAP then as a system, I think it was probably introduced. Was it by Alan Kelly floated this many years ago that we should have something like this introduced? It was introduced, and we're now in a situation where. One would be, or would it be fair to say, it's not particularly fit for purpose in the present climate when we have seen the level at which rents have been increasing incrementally over such a protracted period? Yeah, so I suppose there's two sides to it. One is the the rates of the housing assistance payment itself. Um, The basic rate was set in 2016. There have been some changes, you know, tweaks over time, as in there was a lower rate for a single person and a couple who would both be going for the the one-bed property. Um, Those have now been equalised. So there have been some changes. The amount of discretion available to local authorities has been increased from 20% in the regions outside of Dublin up to 35%. That was welcome. But I suppose, as you say, this has been these have been tweaks uh, to a system that, in essence, you know, if you're designing your housing system, you might you might have an element of a housing assistance payment as a protection for people, uh, as a support to people. It allows people to engage with the private rental market, which, in itself, if it's well functioning, provides a level of flexibility and people can move forward in their lives. Mm. And, and you know, there are stories I can tell you where it has been successful. I think the major problem uh, we have is twofold. One is there's a massive over-reliance on the housing assistance payment. Uh, Close to 60,000 households are supported using uh, the housing assistance payment. Um, And that means it's having, one, 
an, an, an impact on the market, but two, we're very reliant on the private rental market. Um, and the second thing is, obviously, as landlords are now choosing to leave uh, the market, it's, it, it is no longer a fit for purpose. Right, but well, can I put it to you, increased ambition. perhaps, yeah. that, you know, when we talk about housing, there are so many moving parts to getting the house from the point of the foundations to the roof to the tenant or the individual into it that it doesn't it's not like manufacturing widgets there are so many hurdles that we have to surmount now if you look and listen to the government and look at the statistics they say yes you know we're not quite there but we're moving in the right right direction and we're moving a lot faster than we had anticipated and it'll take a little bit of time do, do you accept that uh, the principle of that absolutely 100%. Um, and the issue here is we've had, this was first declared by the then government, particularly when it comes to family homelessness, as a crisis. So we've now had a crisis for nine years. And so the, the, the response of policymakers, the response of our of, uh, governments have not been equal to the challenge because, you know, we've been, it, this has been uh, in a state of, of crisis for nine to ten years now. So we really do need to see um, the level of ambition that's very clearly there. I mean, the government does care about homelessness. It's not that they're uncaring or unfeeling or you know any of those kind of things. There are some very good people working very hard, but we're now at the point where you know plans are are important and all very well, but we really do need to start seeing results. But you accept that the money is there. You talked about the ambition is there. So what is the single biggest roadblock for us to achieve the level of targets that we must achieve to solve the problem? Well, that's a, I suppose it, there are multi-faceted uh, questions to that. One is to... So let, let's take a case example. We had the... Uh, as a preventative measure with the lifting of the of the moratorium, we saw the tenant in situ scheme, which has been a, you know, broadly a success. Um, that, that's where landlords, as you know, are, are selling up and getting out of the yeah. market. Uh, that was driving people into homelessness. The uh, government put in place a plan, which is tenant in situ, where somebody, particularly if they were on a housing assistance payment, uh, at risk of homelessness because the landlord was selling up, that the local authority could actually purchase. It's, uh, it's a painfully slow process, though, Wayne, if you were to listen to the anecdotal evidence uh, in relation to individuals mm-hmm. participating in that scheme. Yeah, and I think that's, that speaks to, so what has happened over the intervening months is when it, it, it started, it, it was very slow. It is now, um, what we're seeing is more local authorities start to engage with it and start to build it up. So really what we need is very clear direction uh, to our local authorities, the, the very clear support for them. We need to take advantage of the really good examples. Um, when you look at the areas of, uh, sorry, to, to finish that analogy, yeah. when, when you look at the tenant institute, we have seen more and more local authorities engage with it um, and a very clear direction about the level of support that they're going to get. So we, it does take time for these things to ramp up, but it can ramp up quickly. We're not seeing that same level of ramping up across the country. We do see pockets of good examples. Another example would be on uh, dereliction and vacancy. We see in Mayo in particular, some really good people there who are very committed to it um, and are really starting to drive change and uh, drive results. Um, other local authorities are not stepping up as quickly. So that again, that is being rolled out. But really, we're constantly talking about this 
uh, process of, of rolling out and ramping up. We nearly need to be at the point now where we're seeing regular results um, and, and, and rollout. And I think critically for homelessness. OK, can I just ask you about the dereliction um, part of this? And it's one of a number of schemes that the government are involved in. And it's, it's quite a laudable scheme in terms of what they're trying to do, just to take those buildings that are derelict, provide grant assistance either for individuals to buy them privately of the local authorities and money from the local authorities to buy them themselves and put them into social housing if needs be. It strikes me that that, as I said, is a laudable um a, a, a laudable proposition, but it doesn't seem to be accelerating at the pace that it should be. As I understand it, there is no national register available of those properties that are out there. That's right. I mean, really, and that's about building in the infrastructure to deliver these um, these uh, initiatives. Um, and I think that that's really a part of the, the one of the many moving parts, as you said, uh, that will that will see us get to um, success is when we have all of these uh, initiatives and we know exactly where we want to get to. So I think uh, that'll be a, a big part of, of driving uh, the success and the, really what we need to see is that very clear strategic plan uh, and delivery of uh, public housing, in particular public housing. I suppose from the, from the Simon Communities of Ireland perspective, what we really need to see is the delivery of secure, affordable accommodation. Um, and that's what's going to address the homelessness crisis. And I think one of the things that we can do when we talk about more short-term measures, beyond the, the obviously, the fundamental uh, answer to this is the provision of a supply of housing across the system that's going to mean that there is more accommodation available. Supply is critical. But okay. Secure affordability is also um sort of uh, the mainstay of that. And I think one of the things that we have to see, uh, as I outlined at the start, with what this housing assist, what this uh, locked out report shows us, is that what we need is for local authorities to uh, extend or increase the level of allocations to people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness. Okay, can I, can I just, Wayne, Wayne, I just want to get back to HAP and maybe discuss that a little bit more yeah. in terms of whether or not it's fit for purpose, because, again, it was an initiative put in place to deal with uh, a short-term crisis, but it turned into an initiative that has had a long shelf life. But as you say, when we tweak HAP, on the other side, rents are tweaked. So there's never really that sufficient gap between what the government is giving and what the rental is in order for the HAP scheme to cover the rental um, for the landlord. So what is the best proposition for HAP to be a good, solid, workable solution. What tweaks... Well, I mean, you say we, we need to stop looking at tweaks, but what needs to be done to have it as a long-term, sustainable um, initiative to deal w- with the situation? So so there's a number of uh, moving parts in that. One is the, the, the rates that happen need to match more closely the market uh, levels. Uh, but nonetheless, you accept, accept that the market levels accelerate a lot quicker than the HAP uh, level from the government comes. I mean, you can't keep pitching HAP towards rental increase on yeah. an ongoing basis. You, you can't. Uh, uh, the way I would put it is you can't keep chasing rent. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely true. Uh, I suppose the, the issue there is, is that we have to look at well, what are the mechanisms for managing rents uh, outside of the HAP system? Because if, if we don't, uh, if we say that the housing assistance payment is a support to people to ensure that they have secure, affordable accommodation, or at least within the private rental market, they have access to it because we don't have enough public housing, then 
uh, to sort of insist on uh, topping up as a means to allow them to get into that is to put on the shoulders of people on the very lowest incomes the, the, the cost of the private rental market. And I don't think that's fair or sustainable. Uh, the issue then is how do we manage the, the, the private rental market? Uh, and that's a broader question. And actually, the way we do that is to become less reliant on the housing assistance payment. The housing assistance payment should be one of the, uh, you know, categories of supports that is there uh, to ensure that there's a safety net uh, for people who are in, you know, need housing support. It, it was actually the, the housing assistance payment was designed as a mechanism. There was, and there still is, uh, under the social welfare system, a rent allowance, which is for people who. Uh, lose their job, mm-hmm. uh, they're in the private rental market and this is support to help them to pay their rent while their social welfare, mainstream social welfare payment helps them to meet their daily costs while they're searching for new uh, employment. The housing assistance payment was to take those people who had been long-term on the rent supplement scheme and to bring them closer to their local authorities to give the responsibility back to the local authorities for their, for their acute housing need. Uh, what we've seen is that rather than uh, so what we've seen is in the, as, the, as the housing crisis has increased that the housing assistance payment has been expanded into the private rental market to provide that support what we should actually be seeing is a reduction in the number of households reliant on the housing assistance payment which would then have a uh, mean that the housing assistance payment would be serving more uh, its need better but it wouldn't be serving as many households and therefore wouldn't have the same market distortion impact. Okay. So really it's about making it fit for purpose. It's actually about reducing it and those people who've been long-term on half, supporting them with secure, affordable okay. um, social housing that lives within the local authority and builds up our own stock and capacity to provide the social infrastructure of housing that is absolutely critical to having a successful very good uh, society, but also reducing homelessness. We must leave it there. Wayne Stanley, Executive Director at the Simon Communities of Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. And that's where we leave you this morning. Mike's back tomorrow, same time. But for now, from me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.